Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Objective Health. Um, I am your host today, Elliot, and this is my co-host, Doug. And now uh, today I am very excited to be introducing a very special guest. Um, this guest is actually an expert in the field um, of something that we call oxalates. And I've been doing a little bit of research into this the past year or so, and um, it's a highly nuanced topic. But um, essentially, this this guest today is going to tell us all that we need to know, or is going to try anyway. And hopefully, by the end of the, the show this week, um, you, you're going to really understand, um, a re well, you're going to have a good idea into... Um, why this topic is actually so important, especially um, when we're talking about how to maintain a healthy diet and um, what is a healthy diet and what makes a health food. Because it turns out that there are actually many foods um, that we're consuming, that we're told are healthy, that actually might not be as healthy as we think. So this week's guest is uh, Sally Norton. And Sally Norton, um, she is a, a, a self-employed health consultant. She's an oxalate expert and um, she's a researcher. So she spent over three decades promoting health, wellness, and holistic healing, both at the community level and also through academic research. She earned, she earned um, her bachelor's of science degree in nutrition from Cornell University and a master's degree in public health leadership from UNC Chapel Hill. Okay, so um, welcome to the show, Sally. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate the invite. Great to connect with you both. Yeah, it's really great to have you on the show. Um, so I think we're going to have to go back to basics because I'm not sure that many of our listeners are going to be too familiar with, with the topic. And so um, you know a lot about oxalates. You know a lot about oxalates. So would you be able to just give us a very basic introduction into what we're talking about when we mention oxalates because there's so much information on on the web about it and it's really difficult to get any kind of solid information because there's people who say one thing and then other people who say another thing so could you just give us the basics as to what are oxalates and where do we find them yeah sure and in in that question there's several sub questions that maybe we can pick apart and that's the the tendency to throw out information that's half-baked and that's happening even inside the research world where they're saying things that aren't true over and over to each other and thinking it is true. So even at the level of the technical folks who are doing the research on this and working with people that are quite ill because of oxalate poisoning in their bodies, there's still confusion. So people who are translating ideas about what we're supposed to eat, um, have very little understanding of the fact that plants produce a lot of toxins and the number one problem with plants, I think, in terms of getting us into trouble with health instead of helping us with our health is oxalate. Oxalate is a small chemical, it's an organic molecule with two carbons in it, and it can be produced in nature from lots of different directions. It can happen spontaneously in the clouds and the air pollution because it's such a small chemical, it's easily formed. And it's used as a cleaner because it's a chelator of metals. So this little molecule starts off as oxalic acid. 
and that's two carbons, four oxygens, and these two protons are hydrogen molecules. And being an acid, what that means is it's, it uh, dissolves things. You know that about acids. Acids drop a positive charge, one of those hydrogen or protons, and they have this reactivity that gives them the ability to dissolve things. And what they're doing is they're picking up other elements that are, have a positive charge. So oxalic acid always has at least one negative charge, but easily has two negative charges, and it picks up things with positive charges. And that little molecule then becomes an oxalate because it's now considered a salt molecule, and often it's in the form of the ox oxide, the uh, acid side plus calcium. But it can pick up any kind of mineral at all. Calcium has two positive charges. A lot of other minerals can connect to oxalic acid and become an oxalate salt. And these oxalate molecules, these salts, you know how sugar and salt actually has crystals? If you shake out salt, you're shaking out crystals. Well, oxalate salts do the same thing. They form these crystals that look like Epsom salts. In fact, they look so much like Epsom salts that people would accidentally take it as medicine if it was mislabeled or unlabeled and die. Jeez. Very quickly. It happened a lot in the early 1800s and late 1700s because people had access to this oxalate salt. It was called salts of lemon because it was an industrial cleaner. It still is. It's used in factories today. It's used in cleaners today, especially in India. It's used in um, Barkeeper's Friend has oxalic acid. Oh, in it. really? Yeah. I used to work yeah, in bars. So I'm familiar with that. You are. So yeah. please wear gloves. I've, I've <laughs> been told by people who've listened to my lectures that they have family members who insist on using Barkeeper's Friend every day and they don't wear gloves and their fingers are completely knotted up with arthritis uh. and they can hardly, they're in pain all the time and they're insisting on cleaning with oxalic acid. And we know that um, thermal contact causes disease and illness. You see it in agave workers who get poison from oxalate crystals and so on. And so going back <laughs> to the fact that it forms these crystals, all right? So the, the poisonings were frequent enough and in the news in the, in the early 1800s that the dawn of toxicology, uh, the very best study done by a brilliant a researcher, fabulous toxicologist who's the father of nephrology, who was Queen Victoria's personal physician. He was one of the most highly respected, brilliant scientists, did a fabulous study that was published in 1823 about how oxalate kills us. <laughs> because people thought they were taking Epsom salts for their stomach problem, but they took oxalic acid crystals and died. So oxalate, oxalic acid, salts of lemon, potassium oxalate, that's what salt of lemon is. This, that's what's in your barkeeper's friend. That's poison. Okay, it kills you. And how much you need to die and whether you die varies a lot from person to person. So there's a whole terrain issue we can talk about. So in the body, if you've got eight to 10 or 12 pairs of these oxalate molecules, they come together and they form the beginning of a crystal. So that is the seed crystal. That's a nanocrystal. Nanocrystals are very small and super toxic. The toxicity of this crystal is equivalent to asbestos or silica. Mm. So basically in high oxalate foods, we're eating something the equivalent of asbestos. 
yet we promote them because we think plants are fabulous. We have this general idea, this general faith that plants are fabulous, but they're fabulous because they've survived our predation of them by poisoning us and bugs and everyone else who's trying to get them. They're constantly under pressure and attack and they have to survive weather and funguses and seasons and predation and they're clever buggers. That's why we go into the Amazon and looking for plant chemicals because plants are chemical factories. Why we think we can eat them willy-nilly in any quantity, no matter what, just because we believe in it, uh, is really unscientific and quite frightening in this era with all this pressure. We're being pressured to eat more and more of these high oxalate foods. So here's an example of some foods that are high in oxalate. Dark chocolate, chia, nuts, quinoa, beets, turmeric, spinach, Swiss chard, sweet potatoes, white potatoes, black pepper, you name it. Okay, so this is supposed to be great for our health. And, you know, they're all available everywhere in any, any grocery store. You can even get high oxalate foods at the checkout at the home improvement store. There's Reese's Cups, there's peanut M&Ms. These are very high oxalate garbage foods. Peanuts themselves, you can just become addicted to peanut butter and be overdoing it. And you're doing it day in and day out in its year-round exposure. You don't ever have a season where you stop eating chocolate, peanuts, potatoes, and so on. And then you're trying to get healthy from your potato habit, and you add in a spinach smoothie to fix everything, mm. and you're making everything worse. Yeah. So. Is that kind of the intro about oxalates? Is that explaining it a bit? Definitely. Yeah, totally. So, but it's it's fascinating because the list of foods that you just said are the foods which are typically, I mean, as you just mentioned, they're typically seen as health foods. Mm -hmm. And people think that when they are, I mean, particularly for our listeners, because many of them may have been on ketogenic diets or familiar with kind of low carbohydrate nutrition. And many of the foods that you just said are relatively low in carbohydrate. So we have those greens, we have, you know, the spinach and the nuts and whatnot. And so people think that, okay, so they're giving up these starchy grains and things, and they think that it's a healthy alternative to actually replace those with things like nut flowers. But what yeah, you're saying I, I is... the same mistake. I, I figured out after eight years of being a vegan, which followed eight years of being a vegetarian, I was quite sick trying to get through graduate school. And my body was finally able to get through to me that I should stop eating wheat and beans. And that, so I switched to sweet potatoes. Mm. So I stopped getting some of the wheat and bean symptoms I was getting, but my arthritis and other symptoms were, and fatigue were not getting better. And, and I've started to get more muscle pains at night and it became harder to sleep. And I started getting, of course, at the end of this vegan years, I had all these wrinkles. I looked horrible. I don't have any wrinkles now, but that was a long time ago. That was 20-something years ago, about 21 years ago when I stopped being vegan. And I didn't fully recover from the damage of that diet because I didn't realize that all the sweet potatoes that replaced all that starch uh, were doing me in. And then as things continued to decay in my health, I added, oh, well, more Swiss chard is the answer. I've been growing Swiss chard since I was nine years old and always loved vegetables and greens and 
I love to put a plate out with three vegetables plus a salad with mm. a meat in the middle. You know, I thought that was great eating, great living, high living, good nutrition, and love home co cooking and worked hard at being healthy and having variety of my diet. And my health continued to degenerate and degenerate and degenerate. Well, it's kind of crazy because the, the, the vegetable thing is really like, it's kind of the standard across all dietary recommendations. You know, the vegans, the vegetarians, even standard American diet, like the food pyramid, they're telling you to eat your greens, you know, five servings of vegetables a day. And then you've even got the keto guys and they're still saying like, even though, yes, you know, there's, there's meat and fat and don't be afraid of that, but also pile on all these veggies as well. So it's kind of like, it doesn't really matter where you turn. Those are the things that are being being recommended. Yeah, I would say that actually when I went ketogenic, I was eating more of these high oxalate foods than I was beforehand. Yeah. And I thought that that was a healthy thing to do. I was like following the recommendations of some of the, the advocates who are recommending 10 or 12 portions of, you know, greens and spinach and whatnot with your meals, with every single meal. Um <laughs> when you when you think of it like this now this is potentially going to be a fairly new concept for many of the listeners as well the idea that plants actually have these inbuilt defense mechanisms but when you think about it logically you know just like animals can run away plants have to f essentially survive yeah right and back. they want to survive so yeah. it's interesting how they do it on all of these levels but when we're talking about okay so so plants are producing this toxin how is it getting into the human body? You know, how are we becoming exposed to it? Okay, so this is important to understand. There's a lot of misunderstandings around this and a lot of dismissals about it and just hand-waving like, oh, well, even uh, science used to think oxalate just went straight through you to the toilet as if that in itself was okay. In fact, if that's all it did, it would still be terrible because you're eating crystals and ions that cause physical damage and cause inflammation and oxidative stress. So your intestinal tract is just one cell layer thick. Now it's got some mucus and bacteria and things that help to protect it, but you are exposing your entire digestive tract lining, which is your barrier between these toxins and you, to crystals and ions of oxalate that are damaging the gut. So number one, it doesn't even have to get absorbed to be a problem because some of the oxalates are in these little molecules or ions. Some of them are in these nanocrystals that are so small, they can get wherever they want to go. They just move around. And then some of them are built from nanocrystals into these incredible structures that are crystals that are big enough to see under a microscope. They're about the length of a dust mite. And so you can actually see them in a microscope. And these crystals are like shreds of glass. And many researchers have described them as crushed glass for 100 years. They look at them under the microscope and say, yeah, we're eating crushed glass splinters. We're eating crushed glass like disco balls that have these different plates of crystals all into a round thing that sticks out and edges. That's called the druse. They make these styloid shapes, which are these square sticks with points on each end. They make these squares that are like two pyramids on each end. So they have these sharp edges and points and electromagnetic charges. They're causing all kinds of grease, both mechanical damage and electromagnetic damage, uh, which causes mayhem on membranes that require 
the right, you know, this is like electronic interference with how cells should be running themselves because it's, it's all about enzyme or electrons and charges that help make life go in, in biology. And so this is interfering with that and also mechanically scraping you up and causing abrasion. Why would we eat sandpaper and shreds of glass and call that healthy? So, so just uh, um, I'm just wondering because oxalates have been um, they've been implicated in in things like peptic ulcers and various kind of um, functional gut disorders where there are inflammatory lesions like ulcerative colitis and and things like Crohn's disease. Is that correct? Do you think it might have something to do with this mechanical? Uh, kind of sharpness, you know, like tearing away at the intestine? Well, I definitely think it's causing inflammation. So you're got, uh, pr- pr- promoting leaky gut. It's also causing a lot of neurotoxicity in the GI tract. So you see things like uh, reflux and heartburn because the nerves that are controlling the sphincter muscle at the bottom of the esophagus are disordered and disabled. You see fecal incontinence in the rectal area, the nerves that are controlling the muscles that control rectal function get disabled. You can get into uh, chronic diarrhea, you can get into fecal incontinence, you can get into belching. Um, the, another um, kind of related neurotoxicity is the disorganization of the diaphragm. The diaphragm starts having convulsions and you get hiccups. Now, hiccups is actually a late stage sign of oxalate toxicity. In the research, whether it's humans or rats, one of the last symptoms and the most telling symptom that this rat or human is about to die is the onset of hiccups. Whoa. Weird. But it's all related to that neuromuscular control. So the neurons that are supposed to be controlling the muscles are going in spasms and causing muscle spasms and there's the hiccup. And personal note, when I was eating plates of Swiss chard and sweet potatoes for dinner at bedtime, I would have all kinds of problems with belching and hiccups. I was very close to being the rat that was dying. I really overdid the healthy plate of vegetables every, because I'm consistently taking care of my health. So I'm consistently destroying my health with that diet. That's sorry. That's that's fascinating because actually, come to think of it, when I was eating a bunch of greens, I used to get hiccups all the time. Huh. Like it was a really common thing. But I haven't had hiccups in a good couple of months, and yeah. I used to get them quite frequently. And I haven't been eating these plants for quite a long time. So that's that's fascinating. Um, okay, so <laughs> well, so we feed you from the hiccup death. <laughs> I think so. Um, okay, so so it's okay. causing like a neurological dysfunction, like locally in the gut. But okay, so aside from the gut, because it can get into the body. Yeah, when it gets so into the body, it can go over. Question, yeah. right? Like, so all right, you've already mechanically messed up your gut. Now your gut is especially good at absorbing it. You're going to absorb at least five percent of what you eat. And it depends on a lot of factors. How, how much is the soluble oxalate versus how much is the crystals? Those big crystals, the sandpaper and the, the toothpicks and, the, and the, the disco balls, all those bigger crystals that you can actually see in a microscope, they don't get absorbed. They just cause wear and tear, right? But the smaller stuff, that's the molecules and the nanocrystals, 
can get absorbed. And as much as 65% of what you eat can get absorbed. Now, if you're, if you're absorbing more than 10%, they consider that hyperabsorption. And a lot of studies have shown that at least two thirds of everybody is a hyperabsorber and without any symptoms of GI dysfunction. But if you do have inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, digestive issues, you are definitely going to be a hyperabsorber and absorbing more than 10%. So back in 1823, the initial toxicology study demonstrated that the absorptive surface was the key thing. That was allowing too much to get into the body for whatever reason. And whoever, who was ever gut lining, whether it was this dog or that dog or this rabbit, you know, he, he tested all this on animals. That absorptive surface makes a big difference on whether you die and how you die and how quickly you die from the oxalate poisoning when it's acute and high levels of poisoning. But most of us are just getting to the level of hiccups and surviving and waking up the next day. Uh, and what, what, what is that? You know, absorbing this at breakfast because you had peanut butter on your whole wheat toast or absorbing it at lunch because you had a spinach salad or absorbing it at dinner because you ordered potatoes or chili with beans in it or decided that you needed chia, not to mention that you needed an afternoon snack bar that was made of almonds and you needed dark chocolate for dessert. I mean, you're going to expose yourself three, five, ten times a day to oxalate. It takes a few hours for that to absorb into the whole bloodstream because it's passing from the stomach to these small intestines and it's moving through your system for at least 24 hours. So more like four to six hours after eating something, you see a peak in the bloodstream of oxalate. Mm. So by the time you go to bed, the oxalate levels in your body are at their highest. This is a terrible time. Oh, excuse that ringing. This is a terrible time to be high in oxalate because sleep is how your body maintains. <laughs> We're going to have to wait for this. <laughs> That's I have fun. to have my spam. My spam must call me. <laughs> <laughs> so the key thing is that there's a delay in absorption too. So you're not going to see the symptom at dinner time. You're going to see it four to six hours later if there is even a symptom as it's coming in. Often it's silent or certainly Elliot never thought, oh, I'm hiccuping. It must have been that spinach smoothie I just had. No. <laughs> Because everyone's insisting on ignorance. We want to dismiss oxalate because, uh, well, oxalate's been around forever, so that can't be a thing. Right? Yeah. So that's real important because as these waves of oxalate, you know, you have a big meal of oxalate, you absorb a lot of it over a course of just a few hours, and the tissue levels get high, the blood level's high, the blood does not like oxalate in it. It tries to get it out of there, and so it disappears from the blood very quickly. And where is it going? Well, that's what we really need to think about more in research because it's getting hung up in the body. It is a toxin that gets stuck on proteins and it gets stuck on cells that can't defend themselves. So wherever you've already got inflammation going on, you've got infection going on, you've had injury or illness, you just had surgery, your cat just scratched you, those, those cells are the ones where oxalate starts getting stuck in the body. And you get this progressive accumulation where oxalate, the body is picking up oxalate, whether it likes it or not. And at least one to maybe four or five, six percent of the oxalate that gets absorbed is now getting stuck in the body because 
You're eating it all the time. There's no chance for the body to unload it because in order for the body to unload it, it needs to not have so much oxalate coming in. So I mentioned this in the previous podcast, this image of too much coming in all the time. This Lucy in the Chocolate Factory thing, you can look this up on YouTube. Lucille Ball, I love Lucy's show, funny show from the 1950s. There's a classic scene of her getting a job at the chocolate factory wrapping chocolates. And she and her best friend, Ethel, are learning to wrap chocolates. And the conveyor belt's coming past them. The chocolates is the oxalate coming at them, right? They're the body trying to deal with this oxalate coming. And it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming the capacity. The capacity of the bloodstream, the tissues, the kidneys, there's a limit to that. And somehow these people who are dismissing, oh, smoothies are fine, high oxalate diet is fine, are dismissing the fact there's a finite capacity to our physiology to take on toxins. It's doing the best it can, but this constant incoming stream puts the body in defensive mode. So it has this way of kind of holding them. It's it's sort of a catch it. I'll catch it and I'll hold it here and I'll wait for a moment when I can release it again. So what Lucy and Ethel do with the overwhelm is they start putting the chocolates in their shirts under their hat you know in their mouths like they get desperate like we got to stash this stuff so they don't know in the packing room that we're not keeping up so the packing room might be the kidneys or the urine and you don't see a problem in the packing room because inside the body we're busy stashing it away so the body's stashing it away and holding on to it hoping for the moment when there's a time when it can get rid of it it doesn't want it there it's doing that to keep you from having a heart attack or having kidney failure So is this one of the reasons why, you know, standard urinary oxalic acid testing or something is is flawed in many ways because some people just simply won't show high, high levels, even if they do have high levels? Yes, very much so. I was one of those people. I had an organic acid test in 2009 and my urine looked fine. I had no oxalate problems whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> I, I see it all the time. Honestly, I'm seeing it more and more. People presenting with symptoms previous histories of really high oxalate diets symptoms which you know are similar to all the things related to oxalate but the urinary oxalic acid is like normal or low and it's like it's it's annoying to think that practitioners rule this out they rule out oxalates because they think that if oxalate was a problem it would always show up on the test but it doesn't. And there's several reasons for that. We know when someone's in deep renal failure, their kidneys are so clogged with oxalate itself that oxalate becomes this filter where the incoming oxalate from the bloodstream and the diet gets stuck in the kidneys because there's so much oxalate there, it can't even pass through it anymore. It just keeps making the deposits bigger and bigger. So the more oxalate in your kidneys, the less you're going to see in the, the urine because it's just getting trapped there. It's a, it's a magnet to itself. These salts and crystals build on themselves. They grow. You've seen crystal growth. They're attached to each other. So if there's a bunch of oxalate in the, in the kidney already, it can't hardly get out. And that's just a known thing that even, you know, high dollar urologists sometimes forget. Like they, and they often don't want to test the urine to begin with. They're not bothering until maybe the 15th kidney stone. I'm like, ah, maybe we should do an oxalate workup on you. There's, everyone's being way too casual about oxalate. The other thing is, too, is that the pathology of oxalate coming out of the body is not well understood. And how the body's doing all this background management is not well understood. We have such a tendency to treat the body as a thing, 
as a box, as a mechanical, not as a living being. So the, the living being of the body has a certain kind of wisdom and all kinds of tactics for self-care. And in the background, the body is doing this management of too much oxalate in the body. It's stashing and wrapping and keeping them as quiet and keeping you as alive and functional as it can. Um, but we're ignoring the fact that it seems to come out in funny spikes. And this was well-established, but not well-documented in research by a guy named Cla Clive Solomons, who tested nearly 4,000 women's urine. And what he saw, he was testing women with crotch pain, basically vulva pain, vaginal pain, all the pelvic issues that are very awful and disabling. And uh, he compared that with normal people without these problems. And what he saw was every woman he tested, because his clever insight was to test every urine void of the day for multiple days. So he would get at least three days of pictures from these women, not necessarily consecutive days, but he would collect each void separately. Now this is careful research, that's a lot of tests, that's a lot of expense, right? Nobody bothers with that. So what he found was each woman had at least one spike, but usually commonly two spikes out of maybe eight voids a day. So if you take the void for your tests, that's not one of the spike times, it looks fine. Or if you take a 24-hour urine, it may be a little on the high side, but it's not unusual, it's no big deal. You don't see that pathologic spike. So there's a lot going on there circadian-wise and maybe just because of meal patterns of the, the way the body's, we haven't studied this enough to explain it. The problem is that researchers wanna stay with the 24-hour urine chemistry, and right there, they already don't wanna use the tools they need to even evaluate what's going on. So the level of ignorance, even in the level of the high dollar research guys, is sad because it's promoting this kind of casual attitude about this. I think uh, another, like, it seems like in, you know, like from a mainstream medical perspective, the, the, when people think of oxalates, all they really think about are kidney stones. But from what you were describing, it sounds like there's, there's a, a multitude of different places where oxalates actually could be interfering. Right. So we're starting with the gut, right? And then where does it go next? The part that gets absorbed. So Doug, the gut is connected to a whole circulatory system that's collecting all the stuff that absorbs into the bloodstream mm. that channels all of that straight to the liver, right? Hepatic circulation drains all this absorptive nutrients and whatever else gets in from our food and bacteria in the gut. To the liver because the liver needs to detox maybe the bacteria in the gut are also producing toxins and you know so the liver is protecting us from all that milieu of the gut colon too and so all the oxalate that you absorb goes straight through the liver now the liver cells filter and process every element in the blood it doesn't just it doesn't get protected it's intimate contact with the cells of the liver so if you're eating peanut butter on toast for breakfast and M&M snack and a nut bar, and you know, if you're constantly, you're, their liver is all day long dealing with oxalate. That's oxidative stress. The liver has to consume a certain amount of its own antioxidants just to protect itself from that direct exposure. The liver has no enzymatic way to disable or undo or process oxalate, it just keeps carrying through. In fact, the liver creates more oxalate because it's undoing vitamin C and dealing with amino acids, and it's actually adding 
to the oxalate load in the blood. I don't know when it's doing that because nobody has really studied that either. They haven't bothered to study. That's called endogenous oxalate production where the body's biochemistry, part of a side, one of the natural toxins that comes out of biology and biochemistry and the you know, processing of energy is the, develop, is the production of oxalate. So there's some amount of the oxalate in your urine, at least 30% of it, maybe 50% of it is coming just from your own physiology. And then depending on how much is coming from your crazy diet, that, that amount will change. And of course, they haven't really studied that endogenous production in any kind of way. They, they don't even know how that varies during the day. They don't know how the diet's affecting that very well. They just have wild guesses. Um, so there's a lot of room for better understanding of oxalate metabolism in the body, but already it hasn't gotten anywhere near the kidneys yet and your liver's being stressed out by oxalate. Right. So, so is oxalate, I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if they've even researched this or not. I looked, I couldn't find anything personally. Oxalate going through the liver so that's, is that depleting things like B6, things like the rest of the, you know, the glutathione system? Is that, is that directly depleting that as it's running through the liver? It, well, it seems to be depleting B, B6 and maybe biotin, all these, because these enzymes are running these reactions that help pr- produce some of those conjugates and some of those self-defense. You know, some mm. of that biochemistry is beyond me, and I don't think we have very good. I haven't seen good research on oxalate's effect on the liver. What I see is myself and a great many of my clients have multiple chemical sensitivity. They cannot tolerate going into these stores full of these, you know, packaging. They they can't tolerate people's fragrances. They can't tolerate nail polish and solvents and gasoline, like putting petrol into their cars is quite a headache inducing thing. So their liver is obviously struggling with dealing with these solvents. And that's often a conjugation reaction. And I think conjugates get depleted as the B vitamins get depleted, minerals get depleted by this constant influx of a chelator that's grabbing minerals. And minerals are getting depleted from many other mechanisms as well, which if we have time, we can talk about that. Yeah. Have you found that people who are, I'm not sure whether you test things like plasma B6 or anything, but have you found that people who have these oxalate problems also come up um, low on any of the specific B vitamins? Like, have you seen any patterns there? Well, I am not a big um, tester type and clinical type. I don't pretend to be a doctor in a clinic. I'm a nutrition educator and don't play doctor. Uh, I, I think we don't understand the physiology of this. We don't understand the biology of this enough. It's, it's simple enough to go back to the logic that, you can, that we could do 200 years ago. You can experiment with a low oxalate diet with the proper guidance, get, get toward that safely, and you can start putting it together. Most of my clients are in no doubt whatsoever once they figure it out and learn to observe what's going on that oxalates are causing them a problem. And we know that anyone who's overdone oxalate is going to be depleted in minerals and B vitamins. And mineral depletion is a huge problem and makes the whole recovery process difficult and is contributing to things like fibromyalgia and a lot of these pain syndromes. And there's a long tail after you 
reduce the oxalate that's coming in through your stomach and coming in through that way. Now you've got all this stuff stuffed in your body that the body's been dealing with and it doesn't want it. It's just going to take it out and it's going to take it out as best it can, as fast as it can. But if it's too fast, you could be more toxic with oxalate on a low oxalate diet than you were in the defensive mode because you've completely shifted your metabolism from one of defense, like sucking it in, holding on to it to one of like, Ugh. and if it's just puking out oxalate all at once, you can wreck your kidneys and feel quite miserable. So switching on and off oxalates is a tricky business, but I, I don't pretend that I can read a blood test and know everything about you. And, and it's, sort of disturbing that we think the plasma tells all because it can't. For example, potassium doesn't hang out in the plasma. It needs to be in your muscle cells. It needs to be in your heart cells. I cannot really tell you how your muscle cells are doing with potassium, but I know if you've been high oxalate, they need potassium and so does your heart muscle. And it takes a long time to get all these minerals back where they need to be. It's a whole country dance kind of getting it in the right minerals in at the right times and getting that back up to where it should be. But I do know if you have muscle knots and trigger points and you're achy and you're having trouble sleeping, you need potassium. Those muscles are probably, you know, starved from oxygen because without potassium, it causes calcium to be inside the cell to make up for that positive charge that's missing. Those muscle cells now with calcium being inside are are on, so they're contracting, which is restricting blood flow into those muscles. So eventually the, those muscles aren't getting enough oxygen and you're creating hypoxia, which hurts a lot. The nerves are unhappy that there's no oxygen there. And of course, hypoxia creates cancer. So these muscle knots are serious. You don't want to leave them there starving and yelling at you all the time. You want to give them potassium. So yes, you need B vitamins, meat and animal foods have a lot of B vitamins that are bioavailable. If you quit making vegetables the star of the show and eat more meats, you can just naturally start correcting that. The minerals, we need to push more with supplements, but I don't play around with blood tests. I don't really think that we know enough about genome tests. We don't know enough about the microbiome. We don't know enough about what's really happening biochemically in the cells that matter. Plasma is not you. There's more to you than that. And so I think you're asking people to waste a lot of money. And people like me who are sick for decades and decades and decades, we have spent tens of thousands of dollars on supplements and tests and paying doctors and experts and homeopaths and acupuncturists and herbalists and massage therapists and you name it, and nobody can help. And one of my chiropractors, when he said to me, finally, he says, I can't help you anymore, Sally. He had tears in his eyes. <laughs> he, he didn't want to be wasting my time and money either, but I wasted a ton of time and money by worrying too much about the experts with their tests and their supplements when all I needed to do is look back at my own field of nutrition and realize, oh my gosh, I've been completely ignorant about something that should be part of the curriculum. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it's easy to be um, influenced by, yeah, there's, there's so many fancy tests, there's so many you know, this, that, and that, and, and, and it's easy to fall into the, the idea, uh, I guess, reductionist 
kind of viewpoints of the human body. And it's important to take a step back. I find, especially for me anyway, I need to periodically do it and pull myself back and say, I'm a human being. I'm not a machine, you know, (laughs) especially for those, especially anyone in the medical community or in, you know, science fields and things, it's easy to become kind of reductionistic, but it's, it's fantastic that, you know, you found that in your personal experience, working with so many people that actually, just listening to their symptoms and using your your knowledge that actually, you know, people don't need to spend all of this money. They can just kind of regain their health by, I guess, eating, trying to eat a diet that is more compatible with human physiology, let's say. Because um, ultimately, it seems that diet is, is, is the kingpin. And the problem is, I think we're up against so much now especially with the rise of veganism and then the rise of keto but you've got things like plant-based keto and it kind of seems like these diets are potentially gonna cause people more health problems in in the long run but with regard to these health problems um you've spoken a bit about how the the oxalate crystals you know kind of get lodged up in the body but what kind of thing how does that manifest you know like if if oxalates if the body is loaded with oxalates what can some because we can't really test for it unless you got like a biopsy or something right so how would someone be able to know if they've got this well there are patterns and the original diagnosis of this was um being done in the 1850s and back then they called it the oxalic acid diathesis and their way of diagnosing it was that there was a uh existing GI problem, like everybody had some kind of stomach problem or intestinal complaint that also had along with it either a rheumatological problem, that's pain, joint muscle pain, or a neurological problem, like bad sleep, bad mood, um, dropping things a lot, uh, you know, this spasm of the muscles, the hiccups, that's all neuromuscular. So the neuromuscular along with it, that's how they the, the other piece that made them know it was oxalates was there was a dietary component. Back then, they could see it rising up seasonally in the spring. People felt better in the winter. And then in the spring, they would always tar- target it when people started having the rhubarb in England. And once the rhubarb came in, this oxalic diathesis showed up. So certain people couldn't take the rhubarb. And in England, they already had the baseline of four to five cups of tea a day and potatoes with most meals. So they had that baseline of exposure with that sudden peak in the spring, they could see it seasonally. So nowadays, you don't get to see that seasonal thing because we tend to be eating these foods. You know, most people have some high oxalate food they like, even if it's just buckwheat cereal for breakfast every day, that's enough. That's very high in oxalate. So you might feel worse at night. I always felt worse at bedtime. I was more swollen and achy at night than I get in bed and I'd start belching and hiccuping. You feel a little better in the morning. You wake up and go, oh, gosh, I feel better because your your levels are lower. You might see these symptoms that flare up and for no reason, and then they kind of get better. And so they come and go. So you see that variability. You also see the fact that the symptoms can like jump around. Some days it's your left hand. Other days it's your right foot. And so it varies with the body parts. It can travel around. Um, The sleep is often, uh, often affected. Skin issues, you might have thin skin or rashes or tender skin. Um, So that, I mean, that's basically it. You have a lot of aches and pains. 
It comes and goes. Everyone says you're crazy. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're perfectly fine. I don't see what's wrong with you. You're just a malingerer, you know? And it's like, it's, it's the kind of thing where if nobody knows what's wrong with you, it's probably oxalate. Does that help? Yeah. That, that actually, it reminds me, and I don't know if there's a connection or not, but that reminds me of what um, people with like fibromyalgia and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and stuff like that would say that they would be going to the doctor and they'd be saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with you when there's, so I don't know if there's an oxalate connection there or not. But I Oh mean, yeah, I, I totally believe that at least a third of everyone with fibromyalgia is just toxic with oxalate and maybe it's all of them. But I clearly, a huge percentage of what we call fibromyalgia, that is oxalate poisoning. Wow. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense, though, as well, because, like, you think about fibromyalgia and hearing the accounts of how people describe it, like there's shards of glass in their skin, and then you go and look at the structure of oxalate. It's like, <laughs> there you it go. Is. Yeah, it is shards of glass. A lot of my clients talk about how they feel like they have really many razor blades poking them in their body. Oh, God. Does it increase with sweating, that that feeling? I I noticed when I was on a low-oxalate diet, I do hot yoga, which is 105 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour and a half of exercise. So you're sweating buckets. And for me, for the first two years or so on this diet, about one out of five of those classes, I could literally feel the prickling crystals in the sweat. I could feel it. That's yep. very familiar to me. Yeah. Mm. So, so, so your body can, can get rid of it via the sweat, but it can get rid of it via like multiple I, other ways, can't it? So, in your eyes. So, if you're prone to a lot of crusting in your eyes, there's something oxalate related to that. The body's getting rid of it. There's a lot of different kinds of glands around the eyes that produce the skin as the sebum and sweat. And then there's various lacrimal glands and all kinds of stuff going on in the eyes. So there's so much glandular stuff up there and the eyeballs themselves are quite alkaline and oxalate gets especially stuck in alkaline tissues and it's hard to get rid of it there because of the alkalinity. But you see, you'll see like extra crust in the eyes or you might end up when you're starting to detox it with eye styes and issues in the eyes. The saliva, you'll get, people with oxalate problems tend to have a lot of tartar on their teeth. When you go on the diet, the tartar goes away, but then it comes back again because as it's coming out of the saliva glands and out of the mouth area, you get the tartar as a sign that, okay, body's clearing up oxalates. The tooth and facial area is very prone to oxalate accumulation. There's a lot of calcium here. Now, calcium and oxalates are magnets for each other. The calcium really goes for that oxalate and is this magnet. And the oxalate in the body gradually moves towards bone and and teeth. So you're going to get oxalate in the face because there's a lot of sinus bones, thin layers of of calcium, basically, and other minerals surrounded by a lot of... um, mucous membranes, a lot of vascular flow in the teeth. So you're going to see people with, if you have tooth sensitivity, that's another symptom both of the poisoning and the tooth sensitivity will come back as those tissues try to break up those bigger crystals. So the body's storing inner jaw and sinuses, these crystals, and how it does it and keeps you from having too many symptoms. Although if you have a lot of sinus infections, chances are you've got oxalate going on there. And when it starts breaking up these bigger crystals that are quiet because the body wraps them in dead white blood cells, 
Now it's got to take some big, quiet, wrapped, insulated crystal and bust it down into nanocrystals and ions for it to move out. So the nanocrystal and the ion is that exposed, electrically charged, toxic molecule that's causing the inflammation, the oxidative distress, the cell distress, brings in the immune system and you get this inflammation reaction to the healing process. So you might see tooth pain when you go back on a, you know, like all carnivore diet, all kinds of stuff could flare up and that's the body actually cleaning out and healing. I think you're muted, Elliot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Um, I was just going to say, I've had quite a few accounts of people who get like gum bleeding, uh, like bleeding gums, uh, swollen tongue, that kind of thing. Um, Is that something that you see as well? Not that often, but it definitely is all part of that frail skin and disrupted tissue that comes from the oxalates moving through that area. So anything glandular is tending to get caught up in, in oxalates. So the body, we, we were talking about excretion of oxalates. So tears and the eyes. I have clients who have crystals pouring out of their eyes, literally like their eyeball. And they go to their eye doctor and the eye doctor says, oh, that's just junk. That's just some old cows, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're not huh. curious about it. I'm hearing this from a lot of my clients and I'm the, I get the eye styes and this and that easily handled though in the process of healing. There's things we can do that handle that. So coming out of the saliva, it's coming out through the colon people, even people who aren't using a chelator, like we use calcium citrate as a chelator that we want to have in the colon. We'll take it orally hoping to not absorb the calcium so that the colon, which can secrete oxalate to get rid of it, excretes it out into the colon from the blood. So this is why people say, oh, you got to have the right flora, because what the colon's expecting is that there's bacteria there that will help it disarm and take apart that oxalate. Often, only at best, 30% of people might have those oxalate-reducing bacteria. But that's just part of the excretion process. It doesn't really protect you from absorbing it. You're going to absorb it. I mean, there isn't that many bacteria in your stomach and your upper upper GI tract is not loaded with bacteria, no matter what you're microbiome is doing so you major excretion route is through the colon believe it or not right so wait there wait there right so the bacteria because reading the the papers it's this is you know the scientists will say this is protective against absorption but what you're saying is actually no the bacteria is not necessarily going to protect you so there's because there's there's an argument, like uh, as a devil's advocate, I might say, okay, you have this oxalate degrading bacteria, and therefore, um, if you do this stool test and it says that you've got this bacteria, it means that you can go ahead and eat loads of oxalates <laughs> and you won't absorb much because the bacteria will degrade it. Yeah, so that's the argument. And that's what many of the scientists will kind of like push in their papers. But you're saying that that's not the case, right? Well, it's pretty funny they're pushing it in the paper just because they've been trying for over 20 years to develop a probiotic so they can put that oxalobacter fermentages in. And they can't even do that. Why do we keep telling everybody, well, your bacteria, which we can't get to colonize anyway, is going to save you? Saving you in that stage of excretion, definitely. If the colon can like, okay, it's flowing into your hepatic circulation, it's possible that even before it gets to the liver, maybe there's a way for the 
colon mucosa to grab that and excrete it out and kick it out. So it's a revolving door process. It's getting in, but you're kicking it out, kicking it out. But in the colon, if something isn't going to catch it, it could just float back in just by passive transport. Mm. So yeah, the bacteria have a role, but they have shown in multiple studies that supplementing it or using an enema with it, it doesn't help. It doesn't fix the kidney stone. It doesn't fix the problem. So science and researchers in the modern era have to focus on research that has some sort of financial future. Yeah. Like it's going to become a product. Science used to be about science, and now it's about developing solutions to problems we don't even understand. Like until we understand the physiology of oxalate, how do we know that the bacteria is really the magic solution? Most of our magic solutions from the last 50 or 75 years have fallen on their faces. Yeah. So, you know, that's just one more distraction from, hello, there is a limited capacity for the body to process oxalate. How much ground glass do you really want to eat anyway? Yeah. It's really simple. It's simple. <laughs> yeah. I that makes so much sense. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I think there's like a, there's a certain level of cognitive dissonance there too, because I mean, we've been told for so long that vegetables are so good for us. So it's like, they don't want to say anything bad about the vegetables because you know, that's just going to upend everything. And I mean, you certainly, you couldn't survive on just meat. It's impossible. No, meat is killing you. Vegetables yeah. are saving you. And it's, it's not PC to say anything bad about oxalate or uh, excuse me, about vegetables. Like, yeah. People deeply defending spinach. Like, what is it about spinach? I mean, did you, are you in its will or something? Is it going to leave you money? You don't want to offend spinach because something bad's going to happen to you. I mean, there's all this social conformity and nonsense going on, even at the level of PhDs with tenure. Like, even they are not picking up on actual science. And it's cultural. So much of what human beings do and want to believe is culture. The way you get treated in a, in a medical office is all about culture. If it wasn't, a doctor would say, wow, crystals out of your eyeballs. I wonder what that is. Mm. And they would go, scientifically, they'd have some curiosity. You know, this woman says her eyes are bothering her. This stuff is happening. She's got crystals in her eyes. I wonder if I could send it to a pathologist and find out what is in her eyes. Maybe, maybe that has something to do with her complaint. No, because culturally, oh, that's just junk. That's just calcium. Everyone has calcium and junk, so forget it. Like It's cultural practices that says, oh, we're going to take your blood pressure, which comes from convenience. It's the low apple on the tree. Blood pressure is cheap and easy to measure, and so we know how to treat it. We know how to talk about it, so we'll focus on that. We've decided heart disease and cancer are the two diseases that matter. So we have a whole public health infrastructure for colonoscopies and you know, cancer tests for early detection, which have nothing to do with prevention and, and real health promotion. And so we've built these big structures, which ultimately make money, but it's not necessarily science. And everyone thinks, well, he's a doctor. He knows everything. And Sally's nobody. And so she must be wrong. And so the culture is really blinding us to things. And I think my personal theory about why we love vegetables so, so much comes from America's experience of World War and and England. England and America were in big trouble in World War One. The Brits were getting bombed to, to smithereens. The mommies in World War One were putting their baby boys and girls on boats and saying goodbye forever so they wouldn't die. 
I mean, it was devastating. World War I was horrible and food shortages were very real. It was hard to keep and keep developing these perishable products of fresh milk and fresh eggs and fresh meat. And so people were um, desperate to eat. And they told them during World War I in England, go ahead and eat your rhubarb leaves because you're desperate for something to eat. And people started dying and getting really sick on it. And they said, wait, 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 wait. Ooh, no, that's too much oxygen. Rhubarb leaves are not good. Stop that. But in America, it was the Victory Garden. The Victory Garden saved the war. Women at home who were fearing that their husbands and boyfriends would never come home again, and many did not, knew that if they could just grow enough food and keep things going in America, that things would, we'd pull through it. And the Victory Garden made the vegetable the hero. And, mm. and it's just, it's from trauma. I think we've been traumatized into thinking we can rely on vegetables when we're starving. And that, that's exactly what the Alaskans used to call vegetables is starvation foods. Mm. When you're starving and desperate, vegetables will save you. So therefore, vegetables are wonderful. And I really think at some cultural level, that's some of the seeds of this fantasy about vegetables are saving us. Daily theory. Yeah, I think it's a good theory because, I mean, clearly, if you look at past generations, they were not eating tons and tons and tons of vegetables in general. It's like uh, that that seems to be a more recent phenomenon. So I think it's a good theory. What yeah, is- and if you look cross-culturally, I mean, vegetables are not like the thing on the plate. If you travel world round, you, you'll see that's just not really a thing. But England and the U.S. and some countries like that have really gotten into the vegetable hero thing, and we're leading the culture of the world. I mean, everyone's been following California for the last 60 years. Mm-hmm. In California, with its big vegetable-growing power, that's what brought its economy up to this awesome thing that it is, is the, the fertile valley that produces all this fresh fruit, and fresh fruit and vegetables represent affluence. If you mm-hmm. can... This is what the kings did. All the great portraits, the royal portraits of things that are beautiful is a giant bowl of fruit and vegetables and a table laden with grapes and pears. And yeah. this is this is what the royalty did. Of course, the royalty had gout, like poor Queen Anne. She was that just started with tea. And Sheila and hot cocoa was a new thing that the French royalty and the English royalty were into at that time. And they all had gout. And they, when I was in school, and the vegetarians blamed the high meat affluent diet of the royalty on their gout, but it was probably their sweet tooth for hot chocolate and their love of tea, which was very expensive. And with the caffeine, both of those are quite addictive. Mm-hmm. So the wealthy people would get gout. Probably Gout is an oxalate-related problem from their tea and, and hot sweet cocoa habit. Yeah. Follow the rich and get sick and tired and gouty. <laughs> it's um I don't know if you've encountered this because I'm sure many well I, I don't know I assume that people who come to you Sally are already kind of familiar with your your work your ideas and things like that um I found that you know the dogma really runs deep in terms of you know like what you were saying about vegetables before this idea that we should be eating vegetables in multiple portions on a daily basis all year round. Um, but really like it's, I, I can understand it because the way that I was trained, I was taught that that was the way that was the thing to do that, you know, that was, that was healthy. Um, but actually I found that 
really when you try to put it into context and approach it as if you were like a two-year-old or a three-year-old toddler and go out in January in the Northern Hemisphere. Like, I'm not sure how it is where you live, Sally, but I live in the UK. And so what I often say to people these days is actually, you know, in January, if you were to go for a walk out in the woods, how many vegetables would you find <laughs> out in the wild? How many fruits do you find out in the wild? So why do you think that it's acceptable or that it's adaptable or that it's suitable for human for a human body to be able to have access to these exotic fruits and things 24-7, you know, yeah. all year round? It, it doesn't seem as though, well, it's it's not something that would naturally occur. Yeah, unless you're living at the equator. But my question to you is, is that if someone was living at the equator, they do have access to these things all year round. Do you think that the human body's capacity to deal with something like oxalate or, well, with oxalate specifically, do you think the human body's capacity to deal with that differs based on things like ethnicity and environment? So someone living at the equator where they do have many of these things kind of available all of the time, do you think that they have a better ability to, to break it down and stuff? No one has done that research, but think about the foods available at the equator. It's like mangoes and coconut and pineapple. Those are all low oxalate foods. Mm. And Weston Price's right. research demonstrated that those folks highly prized the liver of the shark and did a tremendous amount of fishing. And it was basically seafood that um, most of the tropical folks were living on or some form of hunting. It was still not fruit-based diets. That that's, fruit is so yin, you know, it just doesn't really fill you and make you feel sturdy and like you want to go do something great, climb a tree, you know, nah, it just, it's also, there is still seasons to that. And I just don't think that humanity ever thought that fruit was going to make us great again. <laughs> I just don't think that's real. And I'm not sure that that's where the high oxalate foods are. It's just, Nuts. I mean, nuts, they really hard on your system in so many ways. And the oxalates are quite heavy in plants, the seed part of the plant, because there's many functions that the plants need oxalate for, but one of them is to pantry calcium. So the seeds store the calcium in the form of calcium oxalate. So things that are nuts and seeds and grains and the whole, you know, the brand, it's all heavy, high oxalate. These are not practical foods to pick and shell and process. I mean, the, the acorns, the Indians would put acorns in baskets and leave them in the river for a few weeks to get rid of the tannins and get them, you know, they'd be sprouting and get rid of a lot of this stuff. And then they'd heavily cook them and pound them and process the heck out of them. That is a ton of work. And even if you did that, you didn't do it every day because you were constantly moving to find better water, better herds, better hunting. And when you're traveling, you're not pounding and soaking acorns, you're chewing on a pit of fat back. You know, you have some dried out sort of bacon-like stuff in your pouch and you're kind of nibbling on it and you're hiking for days on end. That's a zero oxalate diet. As you're, as you're moving around, you're using hunting. You don't, nobody had a big cooler and refrigerator and, and two wagons of, of flour in the back. They would just have their 
pools and their pots so they could hunt a possum or whatever they could find and just cook dinner when they camped. So, you know, the kids all knew how to hunt. Everyone knew how to spot an animal. And as they're hiking, they say, oh, let's grab that possum so that when we camp in a few hours, we'll have something for the pot. Um, it, it just, it's all a fantasy that we're hanging in trees, eating bananas all the time. I just yeah. don't buy it. And certainly, I mean, if you go in the woods in the Northern Hemisphere, you got acorns. No, you got some pine needles, some pine cones. I mean, try making dinner out of pine needles and pine cones, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so that clears that up. Thanks for that, Sally. <laughs> makes, you know, makes, makes perfect sense, though. Makes, it, it, well, you you're know a what heretic for saying Elliot, you're thinking and looking outside of the culture. Like, if you set aside the culture and you just look at reality for a few minutes, it's very hard for people to do that. Our, our thinking is so shaped by culture. I mean, we're all wearing these rose-colored glasses. We can't. I, it never occurred to me that you could just live on meat alone until I met Amber O'Hearn. I'm like, really? Mm. That's a thing? Like, I'm so culturally blinded by the idea that, you know, my life works better when there's cool vegetables on the plate. Like, that's part of being, you know, middle class. I mean, that's part of being part of my family. That's part of being part of my culture. It's like sticking this stuff on the plate. People get so hyped up about that at food holidays. Like they've got to have what they had as a kid. You know, yeah. it's like we're, we're not being, we're not thinking, we're just feeling our way through what we like to do, what pleases us, what seems good, what's approved socially, you know, start saying spinach smoothies are bad is, is not approved socially. And it might even be physically dangerous because now there's so many people with financial investments in that infrastructure. We're talking about stepping outside of the whole economic infrastructure of our entire society. Yeah. This is not tolerated. You cannot, you're not allowed to step. So ask any sociologist, you can only step so far out of the social norms before you are locked up. Yeah. Well, one other, actually, I mean, because we were talking about fruits and fruits and vegetables, this one thing that I don't totally understand, but I've read a little bit about, and that is the idea that vitamin C actually will convert to oxalate or something along those lines. Now, vitamin C is like a sacred cow for a lot of people. It's like the miracle thing. And, you know, anytime anybody's talking about doing the carnivore diet, you know, the, the first question is, well, where are you going to get your vitamin C from? Separate issue, I guess, but... You know, people yeah. who supplement a lot of vitamin C, are they in danger of actually? In yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Now, the research suggests there's a lot of variability on that too. Like how much vitamin C you can tolerate and how much of it turns into oxalate in the body. This is a known thing. Vitamin C is one of those, what we call precursor to the metabolism as the body's taking out the vitamin C, some of it becomes oxalate in the body. And it looks like if you're taking more than half a gram, if you're taking more than 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day, you're, you're probably overdoing the vitamin C. Mm. Most people are doing 1,000 to 10,000 milligrams of C a day. Yeah. Luckily, you can only absorb so much. The gut protects you from too much vitamin C. So 10,000 is probably just wasted anyway. But uh, they're now using vitamin C as an IV therapy. And you can get 60 grams injected into your vein in two hours and that is for some people not working out. Now, people who do that defend that tremendously because I think some people do tolerate the C. Mm -hmm. And so there's different metabolic, you know, strengths and weaknesses in different people that 
are more of a genome maybe or an epigenome thing. And, but these metabolic studies, we don't have any way to pick out who can take that therapy well and who is going to end up more sick with too much oxalate in their system. And what we're talking about here is a toxicity disease where the internal milieu of your body has got too much oxalate in it. And on doing this, you ask anyone who's finally figured this out after their body's fallen apart and their life has fallen apart and they can hardly function and every day is a struggle, you ask them if they would go back and do it differently and they would totally have thrown that vitamin C away. And vitamin mm. C is one more, quote, food that can get you into trouble with oxalate. And so those of us who've been down this awful road really would love to spare a few other people who are willing to listen. And there are a few listening, yeah, but mostly not. Well, I um, think... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Elliot. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that um, it seems to be coming more to the fore now because you do have a lot of... Like, you know, people come at it from different angles. I think um, a lot of the people were, were coming at it from uh, a, a different angle, but a lot of people didn't really notice this oxalate thing until they started doing things like, um, like uh, carnivore. Um, because I think with the rise of, of people trying the carnivore, they're certainly having all these symptoms of the, the oxalate dumping. And it's like, well, why is this happening? This doesn't really make any sense. You know, I didn't have this happen when I was on keto. And now all of a sudden, I'm having th these strange symptoms start to show up. So I think that, that at least from that community, it seems like, you know, a, a, a lot of the, uh, the Facebook groups and stuff I belong to that are, are kind of carnivore um, groups, it seems like there's a lot of chatter about oxalates now because, well, and I think that's why. It got picked up. I did a presentation in 2017 for the Ancestral Health Society, which yeah. is my philosophical home base. You know, if to cut through the chap, to cut through all our modern um, nonsense and to, to just like let go of all this millions of theories about nutrition, ancestral health helps simplify everything. Just to imagine what we did before all these modern possibilities when we were hunter-gatherers. If, if that's a basic way to just feel sane again and stop trying to figure everything out. Just use basic logic based on ancestral health. So that's my home base. Those are the people I love. They're fantastic. And, and I really think Weston Price's work and Sally Fallon for being the leader to bring Weston Price's work back into modern awareness that's what saved me from the end of my vegetarian. I went from veganism to Weston Price and, and right. that saved me tremendously to start eating tons of butter and all that. So that to say, where, where were we going with this to get myself back off the tangents? But, um, I was, just talking about, I was just talking about how the, the carnivore community, it seems to have come up from oh, yeah. there so, because they were having so symptoms. I gave this presentation in 2017. It's a 30-minute presentation, and um, it got picked up by different folks, and some anonymous person put together a carnivore, pro-carnivore movie and clipped out a piece of that, too. Uh, unfortunately, it was a chunk where I misspoke, oh. where I said, I said, because in a 30-minute presentation, when you have two days' worth of material – there's a lot of pressure, you know, so as a speaker, it's easy to misspeak and stay wrong. So, you know, never trust an oral presentation completely because it's easy to, <laughs> well, I said 4% of what you eat when I meant 4% of what you absorb is what Susan Marengo found in her radioactive rat study. And there was another rat study, similar, uh, slightly different technique, but also using radioactivity with a shorter duration of exposure um, done 
many years sooner than her study that showed this retention that once it gets in the blood, something like 4% is stuck all over the body. And she was able to establish that because of using radioactivity. So that got picked up in some of these online, you know, somebody's picking it up. And I think that's partly why now ancestral slash carnivore world is noticing it because A, now they have someone else giving them one more reason why we have all these aches and pains and explaining what happens when you go to a low oxalate diet. Now you're still full of oxalate and it's high in your system still, but now it's coming out instead of going in. So you've reversed that, that now it's going the other way. You, you've been on this loop building up your stashes. Now it's got to come back down and that's going to take you five, maybe 10 years to get it out of your system. So if you go suddenly from spinach smoothies and almond nut bars to full carnivore, you're traumatizing your physiology. You're traumatizing that whole catch and release process where the body's in defensive mode. You're traumatizing your microbiome that's been eating all this fiber and all these things. That's changing. You're also asking your cells to suddenly burn ketones instead of sugar. That takes many months, I think, to get that material up. So this is way wrong. You don't jump from high oxalate to, to carnivore. Right. I think carnivore has a lot to teach us. And that the high nutrient value of meat, the high viability, rests your GI tract. It gives you that vitamin pill in a form that's actually useful. It can be very restorative and reverse this depletion caused by plant foods and oxalate in plant foods. But you can't jump from high oxalate to carnivore. That is going to make you really sick. Hmm. You may end up in the hospital with kidney stones and kidney failure. You're going to ache and pain. You're going to be screaming like, what is going on with me? It's terrible. Do, do we have to? It's like you're out on a ledge committing suicide, right? You're out there on the edge of a cliff or a windowsill, jumping off the high oxalate train. You're about to hit the ground and die. Or you back off that ledge very carefully, reversing your way out of this high oxalate lifestyle wisely, slowly, gently, and then build up your nutrients and then hope that you can get through some of these days when it's going to not be fun. So does that involve like like staying on like some level of oxalates or maybe cycling oxalates or something like that? Well, it seems to. I I um it depends on your constitution emotionally. Some people once they recognize that their ultimate enemy that's made them disabled and miserable is oxalate, how can you bear to eat it anymore? So there's a whole tussle there, you know, but people who are still really wanting to hang on to their dark chocolate and their cup of tea and their, you know, tater tot or their peanut, this or that, you can keep that stuff. Keep your sugar, keep some of that stuff, work your way down. And if you're down, you get down to like from 1500 or 2000 milligrams a day down to like 500, you're already lowering it enough and you want to even get there gradually if you can, you know, so mm. Susan Owens group says, you know, 5%. I think that's a little too small a change because you're going to vary by 25% every day anyway. I mean, you're already varying it up and down all the time anyway. I think you could cut out, you know, a high oxalate food, or at least cut it in half and dose for the first five to 10 days and then keep picking a food it's high oxalate that you can live without. You probably don't need that buckwheat cereal. Right. Can that, you know, get off of that. You live without it. And then the whole grains, you can live without that. And then the spinach really, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather have a stick of butter? Honestly, Nobody really likes that stuff. 
<laughs> They're lying to Taste. themselves. Tastes like, horrible. You don't even need a blender. Like all these bullets bought and spent money on you know really they're just selling you stuff and giving you one more chore to do so think about those really high ones that you can live without and start slowly backing your way off from them and some people it takes a long time but you're better and it also will make it harder for you to see the symptoms if you go suddenly to low oxalate you will see it and you will be sick and you'll go, oh my gosh, I just got hit by a truck. And you're going to blame the butter or the cholesterol. <laughs> like, right. That's another thing. People think, oh no. Yeah. And like the fatty liver is probably from all this distress from the oxalates and the high sugar that is now showing up because your system is like in this almost traumatized mode of trying to recover and get better. Mm-hmm. So nobody's looking at this. I mean, you need a huge amount of money to collect a few thousand people who are high in oxalate and really study this process. No one's had the money to do it. So Susan, thank goodness for Susan Owens because she's crowdsourced to even recognize this is the phenomenon that they see over and over again. You go suddenly low oxalate and rash breaks out and then, you know, other weird stuff that's never happened to you before yeah. starts showing up. That's the body going, oh, thank God, we're going to get rid of some oxalate. But it, it, by releasing oxalate back out into the interstitium and into the plasma and so on, you're asking the immune system to come along and clean up the mess and you get all this inflammation and weird reactions and it's ugly. So, so for those people, say people who've been on like high oxalate keto and then all of a sudden jump onto carnivore, stay carnivore for maybe four or five months start getting some symptoms what sort of thing would you recommend for them if they feel that they're adapting to carnivore they like the way that it's going and they're willing to deal with the symptoms would you just say like this person can deal with that oxalate load you know is there a difference like you said there's individual variability so would some people who have been on a high oxalate diet jumping immediately to carnivore, they seem to be able to deal with it. Whereas other people tend not to. So how would you make that distinction whether someone can deal with it or not? Well, it's really, we're just in the dark here because there is so much variability. It takes about five days for cells to generate the mechanism for getting rid of oxalate. So the first five days after you go zero oxalate, you're going to feel much better. There's this honeymoon period. Sometimes it's two weeks. Sometimes it's even a month, depending on how you've backed off. But at some point when the body suddenly goes, okay, now we're going to get this these, uh, infrastructure together so we can get rid of the oxalate. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to get the infrastructure together to burn ketones instead of sugar. It takes some metabolic adjustment and how well your body turns around that and how well your body is um, able to produce the antioxidants and so on. If your system's already been inflamed a long time, if you have infection, co-infections, you're not going to do as well because the cells are just worn out. So depending on your just general vitality, I think it's going to that's going to affect how much antioxidants the cells can manage and, and how well this goes. So it's super variable because the places that you've got deposits – really represent your personal history of where you've had injury, where you've had overuse. If you type all the time, it might be in your wrists and arms and shoulders. Mm. You've been pounding around on the campus with your heavy books. It might be your feet. 
you know, if you're a ballerina or a runner, it might be your feet or knees or hips. Uh, you know, so it's going to be, it's kind of like your old issues might come back because wherever you've had issues or injuries, those areas are full of oxalate crystals. And as they come out, you might see the skin peeling on that body part, but the feet are working great. Like for me, it was my feet. I had to drop out of Cornell where I was getting my nutrition degree for four years because my feet were such a mess. And during that time at Cornell, I was told I had gout, which really was the oxalates. And I didn't know that that could be related to, no one would have put, so of course I had orthopedic surgery and I was still growing Swiss chard and that was still not good. And I spent almost a decade on crutches, Whoa. major pain, huge amounts of Motrin. And I had to use a wheelchair to go in a grocery store or go on vacation or go to the fair. I'm in my 20s and I'm total cripple, traveling to the middle of the U.S. to get surgery. And that didn't recover well until 30 years later when I went on the low oxalate diet. Wow. And then I get a couple of tweaks in my feet, especially that left foot, which was the worst. I get this peeling skin. I look like I have leprosy and it looks like I have maybe athlete's foot and all this stuff. The peeling skin lasted about three and a half years. Oh. And, but within six months, now I can wear heels, I can use my feet, I can jump, run, play. All those 30 years, I couldn't go barefoot because my feet would, the connective tissue wasn't strong enough to hold my feet together and I needed some side support in my feet. They get real tired and achy. I could not run. I could not do things like tennis, forget it. Uh, any kind of side movement, heels, oh man, that's not good. But now I can wear heels. I can stand on the ends of my toes. I could do whatever I want <laughs> now five plus years after I've been on the diet. So 30 years of delayed healing and voila, my feet are fine. Uh, and that's a lovely thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we could really put orthopedic surgeons out of business if we could we quit all these high oxalate foods were any good. If you got an orthopedic issue, you got carpal tunnel, you got something going on, you do not need oxalates in those damaged tissues. It seems like oxalates are universally problematic. Yeah. Like it, with the plant toxins, like when someone starts looking into this kind of material, there's all of these arguments for the phytonutrients, you know, like the um, NRF2 upregulators and all of these things, which potentially like upregulate, you know, these, these phytochemicals in plants that go into cells and they upregulate all of these cool antioxidants and things. And this is one of the arguments for eating plants. Um, but with the oxalates, it doesn't seem from what I can see anyway, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like there's any beneficial or useful, um, it doesn't seem like the body can make use of them. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, is there any use for them like at all? There was one article written in the most odd logic that I still don't know what he's trying to say, trying to argue that there's some use, metabolic use for oxalate. And there, it might be that oxalate is used as um, an antibacterial. Like it's so toxic, you can kill the bacteria, of course. So it might be that oxalate could be put into uses like that in very spot situations. But certainly to fill yourself up day in and day out with oxalate is just self-poisoning. It's a fatal chemical. It's somewhere between three and a half grams and 30 grams, and this is a crazy range, is the fatal dose. So if you're sick, if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you've got liver problems, if you've got 
age and frailty, you're down at the three and a half gram level. You're lower than somebody, you know, who's fabulous. We, there is a paper that I cited in that talk and mention often about a man in Barcelona who was 53 years old who dropped dead on about three and a half grams of oxalate from sorrel soup, which is sort of like spinach, you know, it's a, huh. it has that nice sour taste that oxalic acid gives a sort of a lemony taste. Remember it was called salts of lemon because it has this sort of sour lemony taste. So the guy, he's an alcoholic, overweight, diabetic. So of course he probably drank too much and he's trying to make good and get himself all healthy. So he orders two or three or four bowls of soup at the restaurant instead of just the usual one. And he ends up dead. Oh my God. Sorrel soup actually killed the guy. Jeez. Wow. Fatal fatal poison, oxalic acid poisoning from sorrel soup or something like that from the Lancet published this very short study, but you know, they, they got him, he was throwing up and feeling horrible and he got to the hospital and they put him on life support, you know, the dialysis and the respirator and all the life support and life saving things they could do. And they lost him in two hours. So he filled up with crystals. He his, he probably was already filled up with crystals because probably, you know, addicts will tend to like be out of control with their behavior because of malnutrition. I really believe that addiction is a reflection of the malnutrition of the brain. And so that malnutrition makes them unable as much as they don't want to be an addict, they can't do anything about it. So they're they're stuck in this nightmare addiction and they try to like make good by going for the good food. So they'll go for spinach smoothie or sorrel soup kind of remedy. And those people are really um, in danger of being literally killed. I'm really concerned about using spinach in nursing homes and, you know, rehab centers and daycare centers of all kinds for babies and for adults who have dementia so would you say that there's any uh, safe limit for the diet? Like if, what, what would you well, say like is a lower limit? The expected normal intake is 100 to 200 milligrams a day. And if we literally stuck inside that range, we'd probably be okay. But it's really easy. I mean, one, your typical smoothie is pretty much close to a, a gram, a, a thousand milligrams, depending on how much almond butter you've added and peanut butter and is extras. And, but three cups of spinach is over 900 um, milligrams of oxalate. So just add a little almond milk and a little almond butter. And there you go. You've got a gram of oxalate. That's, you know, what is that? Five to 10 times the range that you should get all day long. Yeah. Right. So that means if you were to stay, say, 200 a day, then you get 60 per meal, 60 milligrams per meal. That's about 12 baby spinach leaves. Huh. When you think about when, when you cook spinach and it turns into nothing, nothing? <laughs> you need to use like half a bag just to get anything out. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, that's a great point. When you cook your vegetable, you eat more of it. You're making it denser. So you take a fluffy salad and you cook it. You get like a teaspoon of spinach. You know, this is not good. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that brings me to a point, actually, because there are people who will come along and they'll say, okay, cooking, uh, cooking is a way to protect your, your body against oxalates because cooking destroys, destroys most of the oxalate. Now, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, uh, that's a generalization, and this is the thing. Uh, the, 
the generalized dismissal. Oh, well, just cook it. You know, like I don't want to look into the details and really know anything. I'll just tell you to go away and say, just cook it. And that comes from the uh, fact that cooking can disable a lot of enzymes in things and soaking can, if you soak them long enough, like with lectins, if you soak them for three days and then cook things at really high heat in a pressure cooker, you can disable lectins. They're giant proteins, a very different mechanism, very different kind of toxin, phytates and these other things and these enzyme inhibitors and so on. Very different than a basically an asbestos crystal. You're not going to remove the asbestos crystal by cooking, but the smaller soluble molecules and nanocrystals might leach into water. So if you boil your broccoli, you can reduce your oxalate by about a third. If you boil your asparagus, you can reduce the oxalate somewhat. So some if, boil your kale, you can cut back and throw out the water. The problem is most people think like vegetable broth is okay. Yeah. Let's make a vegetable broth, maybe a potassium vegetable broth from the peelings of potatoes. Potatoes are super toxic in many ways. You're going to collect those toxins in the water. The ones that are soluble and easily move around are the ones that easily move into your blood. Yeah. So if you collect those cooking liquors and eat them, you're just getting the best of the oxalate out of it. But if oh, you clean your vegetables, like do boil your broccoli, do boil your asparagus, and there's then there you can have a more full portion of them and enjoy them with complete peace of mind. You don't need to be afraid of food. You just need to be better educated. You haven't been taught. Okay, so um, how about this one? This is one that I've heard a couple times. <laughs> I play devil's advocate here. Um, right, so spinach, we know that spinach contains lots of calcium as well, yeah? And when calcium is binding up with the ox- oxalate, it's, it's forming this calcium oxalate salt, yeah? And this is insoluble. So this is one of the crystals that's not going to be absorbed into the gut, uh, assuming that the gut is not leaky, yeah? yeah so, right. so what happens when you eat spinach, is the calcium not protective against the oxalate? Well, actually, there's several layers of issues going on with that idea. Number one, in spinach, you've got at least 70%, 72, 73%. Some huge amount of the oxalate in spinach is in the soluble form. Okay. So whatever calcium is there, it's not enough to really sop all of that up. So there's not enough calcium to make up for that. But But what is so about that is that zero of the calcium in the spinach is doing you any good whatsoever because it is going to get bound with oxalate. And once calcium has attached itself to an oxalate or oxalic acid and calcium together, that's a bond that's not coming apart anytime soon. Mm. So you've, you've actually converted a perfectly nice mineral nutrient into an evil toxin. So yeah, there's calcium there, but it's only going to be this toxic form of it. And none of the nutrition tables do any corrections for this. So the nutrition table will tell anybody who looks at it that there's calcium in this food, even though we have known for 90 years that there is no nutritionally available calcium in spinach. It's still in the tables as if it's there. Why? It should just say zero because... We don't bother with bioavailability nutrition. Here it is, almost 2020, and we still aren't caring about bioavailability whatsoever in our data tables about nutrients and food. So we can willy-nilly just fantasize 
that the nutrients that you can measure in a lab have anything to do whatsoever with whether your body can get a hold of it and make use of it. Plant nutrients are very hard to extract from the fiber and from those chemical forms and convert to something you can use in the body. But the nutrition world is content to just ignore the fact they already know this, but they're not actually using it to think well about how do you deliver nutrients to a person? It isn't with spinach, I can tell you that. There's yeah. almost nothing in spinach that's going to really do you any good that you can get to. Right. That makes is, sense. That, is that enough of an answer? I mean, we yeah. can Oh, no, indeed. No. Yeah, indeed. That was one of, that's one of my, my pet peeves about all the nutritional information on foods out there is that they, they don't, it's not about bioavailability at all. It's just about, you know, how much of a given mineral is actually in there, but it's not how much your body can actually use. And that that's never taken into account at all. And that's really embarrassing. I mean, to me, that tells you that the state of nutrition in public health is kind of miserable. Absolutely. It, I'm from this profession. I am embarrassed for us that we're so out to lunch. This is not right. Yeah. Forgive my, you can see I'm quite passionate about this. Understandably. My biography has been screwed up by oxalate since I was 12. I've had arthritis and aches and pains. My academic and professional career have all been dogged by me being sick by trying to be healthy. And I don't wish that for anybody. Yeah. I've got another one for you, Sally. Give me my Wonder Woman bracelets. Ching, ching. Right, okay. So there's a, a lab. A lab. Uh, in the US and they are proponents and they teach people and at many of the conferences as well on these kinds of topics, they teach people mm-hmm. that if someone's got oxalate problems, then it's probably being caused by an overgrowth of candida in their gut and that the treatment protocol is after you kill the, after you kill the candida with antifungals, that um, the oxalate problem will go away in and of itself. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that. Is that, is that true? Does killing yeast um, resolve the, the oxalate issues? Or... <laughs> <laughs> We're having quite a good time because we have covered enough today that you can see already that this constant uh, bombardment and flushing your system with, with, Smitted smoothies and high oxalate, you know, chia seeds and all of that is, is just fundamentally a disaster. And one of the things that does for you is it creates a terrain where the pH is messed up and a lot of things are messed up in your terrain. So when you're high in oxalate, it's easier for candida and things to grow. So you tend to see them together. Also, tissues that are in infectious state tend to get caught up with the oxalates get stuck in those inflamed tissues. So you can see how you might associate the two because when you start to dump oxalate, you will start seeing these sort of like flare ups in vaginal yeast or things like this. And that's because the terrain is changing and allowing the yeast that would naturally be there to overpopulate. Because in many of these, you know, this dysbiosis is really about things that should be in small quantities 
suddenly getting a leg up and the environment allows them to overgrow. And it's the oxalate environment that allows them to overgrow. And they're not the basis of the infection. The infection isn't creating the oxalate, although some molds will do that in the body. If you get an Aspergillus infection, which is, you know, breathed in in the air, you get a, a, a spore of Aspergillus in the air and you breathe it and somehow it gets stuck in your inflamed lungs because of the pollution or whatever, or the oxalate, your lungs are not happy, the spore gets stuck in your lung and that aspergillus will generate oxalate and make you quite sick and they'll find crystals of oxalate in the lung and that person will have kidney stones and oxalate poisoning partially because of that aspergillus infection. So and penicillin is able to make oxalate and a lot of the molds in the soil, the funguses in the soil make phenomenal oxalate, like beautiful structures of oxalate, like crystals, crazy. And that's part of managing the calcium in the soil, um, which is really nice for plants because plants don't like high calcium soil, so they'll grow well in soils full of these mycorrhizae that make a lot of these crystals because then it, it kind of moves the calcium out of the bioavailability. Once it's locked up with oxalates, it's a lot not very bioavailable. So the molds, the fungal rhizae in the soil really help plants and plants that don't have so much calcium will make less oxalate, actually, because the uh, calcium is toxic to the plant. And one reason why plants make oxalate is because they're trying to manage the overcalcification of the soils they're growing in, mm. um, which is another example of why the variability in, in one food versus another depends on growing conditions. And there's many other growing conditions that affect that. But blaming the candida for the oxalate that I haven't seen anybody prove that candida can even make oxalate. There are plenty of yeast and molds that have no power to make it until you prove that oxalate is metabolically capable. I mean, candida is metabolically capable of producing oxalate at all. You don't have a leg to stand on. So that makes no sense. If you deal with your oxalate overload and you have flare ups of yeast, that's easily treated with dilute, um, uh, hydrogen peroxide or tea tree oil or these things as these things start because literally some of these organisms get caught up in the crystals in the body and as the crystals get broken out you will release old viral stuff like you might get some cold sores or something that looks like athlete's foot or these flare-ups of yeast you're going to see these quote infections just start pouring out of your body but they're they're old, not really virulent, and they respond really well to things like coconut oil and tea tree oil, and they're no big deal. They're not the cause. They're part of the milieu of being poisoned by oxalate. And so <clears throat> there's um, – I don't know if you know anything about this, but the, the findings of um, various kinds of chronic uh, infections, chronic pathogens which are associated with like a wide variety of, of what we call autoimmune conditions so i mean one of them is uh let me think off the top of my head um or with when you've got atherosclerosis you've got chlamydia uh chlamydia pneumonia i think it's called and then you've got other kind of chronic infections which are associated with these um diseases but but long-term antibiotic treatment doesn't always necessarily, uh, sometimes it works, but for other people, it doesn't seem to work. And I was wondering if you thought that maybe these underlying chronic infections may actually have something to do with oxalate, actually either uh, 
making like an area of the body more susceptible to, to the to the infection or whether they're kind of like living in the oxalate or the kind of like living in the oxalate crystal or something because i know that e coli can do that and there's a couple others like you said and i was wondering if you think there's any connection there well, we definitely see connections with kidney stones. A person who's prone to kidney stone will end up with a kidney infection, and that's usually what kills you. How the kidney stone kills you is from the infection. You know, it kills you pain-wise because it's blocking flow of urine, and that block allows for bacteria to set up shop and to start proliferating. And it's very likely that the similar processes where the normal tissue flow, fluid flow, the lymph flow, and other things that would normally keep tissues bathing in interstitial fluid that keeps moving around, it's very possible that oxalate deposits are interrupting the normal flow and exchange and maintenance of those tissues. There's no question that tissue maintenance and repair and recovery from injury are all retarded because of oxalate in those tissues. So it's perfectly reasonable. And I see like in myself at about two and a half years into this low oxalate life, it was, I had many tests that showed I had active Epstein-Barr reactivated in Lyme's disease. Hmm. And um, nobody did anything about it. So I started cryotherapy and some kind of like, hello. And then someone gave me an antibiotic. One course of antibiotics seemed to just work it out. And that was the end of it. So I don't know if that was, they were both coming up and out because I was, you know, in this major two and a half years, you're doing some deep work now in your tissues. Some, some junk is really coming out at this point. And really it's like a year and beyond from like year one to year three, you're, you're in some deep healing work and some ugly stuff can be going on. And so I, the fact that it was so easy to cure, like, you know, most people say you got Lyme disease, you're screwed, you know, you're going to, and it just took one round of antibiotics and it, you know, I haven't retested it, but I don't feel all that fatigue. When they were both going on, I was dragging, you know, when you have active Epstein-Barr and Lyme's disease at the same time, you are dragging. So that's an N of one, but the, but it's theory holds that tissues that are under distress are prone to infection. You just, you are. You know, and the depletion that goes with oxalates, you're going to be depleted in minerals and, and B vitamins pretty much guaranteed. And so that all, that's the fundamental, that's what disease comes from. It comes from toxicity and nutrient deficiency. If you don't have those two things, you can't really get sick. We're meant to be awesome. And we can be if we don't have toxicity and nutrient depletion. And oxalate is a fabulous character for creating both. Mm. So in terms of practicality, I know it's probably difficult to make any sort of solid recommendations because as you said, like everyone is individual. So what's going to, you know, the, the pace that one person works at is going to be different to another person. Um, but in terms of, because our listeners are probably going to be thinking like, oh my God, <laughs> I've got loads of oxalate. What do I do about it? They're probably going a bit crazy right now. I was when I first listened to this kind of information. Um, what would you recommend for someone who's just getting into this and kind of uh, who are tempted to drop every oxalate containing food out of their diet? What would you recommend and what resources are there available? Because I know that you've got lots of things on your website. Could you tell our listeners kind of, you know, what you've put together in terms of providing for support for people, where they can look and, and kind of how they can start this journey? 
Right. Well, um, I think the biggest part that needs to be healed is your mind and your soul. Like this is such a gut punch that here you've tried to be healthy and you're doing your chia seeds and your chia pudding and your that and your and you think almonds are so great because you can carry them around all day and you know it's so difficult emotionally and and so it's just important for you to tap in you know know people like me and, and and be reinforced and see if you can get people in your life to learn about it too so that when you start changing how you eat that you don't get all this blowback because the last thing you need is everybody fighting you on it. So if you can't get your household to be willing to learn a little bit about this and, and be supportive, then you really need support and you need to call somebody like me who knows stuff and can validate what you're going through. So that's the main thing. I think it's so upstream, you know, one of my um, clients who's been vegan most of her life, she's in her mid fifties she went raw vegan and she's completely falling apart and emaciated and really battling the whole inner demon of everything that she's bought into and believed in and taught to others. And it, she now talks about how, you know, she's a salmon swimming upstream from her own stuff. And, and now she understands that we're meant to be hunters and all that. It's really hard. So I think, most importantly, nurture your soul, you know, make sure you've got things in your life that nurture you as a person, you know, don't neglect your own humanity, you know, plant a flower by your front door and, you know, have a yoga class, have a buddy, give yourself a break, um, ask people to give you time off, know that your function is going to go up and down and just mentally prepare yourself for the fact that you are sick and now you know why. Now you know why, but no one else around you knows why. Your doctor thinks you're crazy or you're not going to find a lot of support. Your doctor, you might have weird stuff coming out of your skin. You might get white dust peeling off yourself. And the doctor's going to be like, well, whatever. It's just because you're a nut job that that's happening. <laughs> and so you're going to, so I think the most important thing, honestly, is to just love yourself better through this. And on my site, in the support section, you'll see the shop download section. There's a beginner's guide that has the high oxalate list and the, the best bets on there and so a, a graphical explanation. And if you sign up on my listserv, on my you know, email list, you can get a coupon for that and not pay $2.50. But, you know, it'd be okay to have me make a living and throw $2 in my way. I would Okay, I've been working hard to know this. I've spent four years in my life. And nobody's just said, oh, thanks for coming to the library. Would you like $1,000 for that? And everyone has said that. Unbelievable. Uh, so I'll take any support. You know, I am working on a book on this. And, um, oh, and great. Publishers. And I have a whole lot of recipes compiled in a big PDF. And I'm not sure how to deliver that and let people buy it from me. So got to figure that out. That's coming. But if you're a client of mine, I particularly pick out a few recipes to get you started and walk you through it. I, I really think everybody needs some potassium citrate and it's okay to take it. It's not going to kill you. This is another big myth in medicine, like, oh, potassium. <laughs> yeah. No, you really need some potassium. Uh, it's standard treatment for kidney stones, like 10 grams of the stuff, but you can do a hmm. lot with them. 200, uh, two, two grams or, and which is about, uh, 20 pills. Cause you're only allowed to put it in the 99. 99. Pills. Yeah. 
Somebody decided that, you know, people who are in late stage um, kidney failure don't process potassium well and it does back up in the blood and you can get in trouble with that. The rest of us can waste potassium all day long. The RDA is 4,700 milligrams. So, you know, get on a little potassium citrate, a little magnesium citrate. You know, there's things we can do to get you through it. But the, the main thing is like, please feel um, validated. and. It's not your fault. Don't blame yourself for following this advice and going vegan and going nut crazy and doing all these bombs with chocolate bits in it and, and thinking that chocolate was going to allow you to survive keto. Um, they've just invented all this stuff. The whole paleo muffin was an invention. They didn't study oxalates to say it was okay and safe. The whole autoimmune paleo is just an invention. It's it's been accepted on the internet as a thing, but it's not a thing. Um, I so just want to. You keep getting tricked. Go ahead. No, I just I just wanted to quickly add there, Sally. You mentioned autoimmune paleo. That is insanely high on oxalates. Oh, I've really? got several people who've come to me autoimmune paleo, having green smoothies, sweet potato with every single meal beetroot juices you know this is this is what you're meant to be on when you've got an autoimmune condition it's yeah oxalate is probably the biggest generator of autoimmune conditions of anything past immune uh, past vaccines oxalate is constantly irritating the innate immune system and triggering the inflammasome and putting you in this loops all of us with oxalate problems feel like we've got like six autoimmune conditions, none of which have been diagnosed because it's all vague and nebulous. But the, there's this chronic inflammation going on. And now well, a lot of us are like hyper allergic to the whole plant kingdom by now. Like this has been irritating our immune system so much, the immune system just can't figure out what it's supposed to be battling because the oxalate is constantly causing cells to call in the immune system for help. And in my oxalate diet is the best way to feel like an immune nightmare. And so, you know, this autoimmune paleo, but they just, somebody is good marketing and they're making good money. And I bless yeah. you for trying to help people, but you didn't quite do enough research. And that's because nobody, nobody in the medical literature, nobody in the toxicology department, nobody in the dietitian world and in public health and in medicine has warned anybody about the fact that you can get too much oxalate through diet and get yourself into some serious health places you do not want to be. That's nobody's fault. It's not anybody's fault that medicine chose to ignore this. Human beings have cultural ways of doing everything. and We just decided oxalates weren't a thing and we are not right about that. And so <laughs> I'm just hoping that those people who really are sick of feeling sick can find this information and turn it around. Cause you can, this is a totally avoidable problem. You can get into really disabling health problems and it was avoidable to begin with. How much it's reversible depends on a lot of things, catching it soon, doing it well, sticking with it and living long enough. You need that five to 10 years to really find the awesome sweet spot. So I'm doing my best to help everybody. I wanna get this book out. I wanna get a cookbook out. I've got materials. I'm consulting with people who really need to be handheld through the process, understandably so. Um, and honestly, a lot of it is the darkness because I can't, I don't have tens of millions of dollars to pull together a research study to give us definitive answers about what's the right course of action 
for diagnosing this and treating it and making the recovery as painless as possible. Yeah. Um, I'm f- it's that because it's kind of like you're um, shooting in the dark, so to speak. Yeah. Um, it, the the trying low oxalates group is also a good resource, isn't yep. it? Because there are people on there who have, you know, been doing it for a very long time. Yeah, the um, moderators are just as devoted as I am, and some of them have been more devoted for longer years than even I have been. And Susan Owens, we owe a great debt of gratitude to her. And real pioneer, if you just want to just honor the fact that we even know anything about this, is thanks to the the VP Foundation, which stands for Volva Pain Foundation, which has been around for nearly 26 years now, getting food tested for oxalate and helping people with pelvic pain. And it was that work, that's the work that made it possible for the trying low oxalate group to start helping autistic kids about 10, 15, 10 years ago or so, or 15, I'm not sure what it is now, but yeah, it was really from the bravery of one person who suffered greatly, who persevered through much hardship and pain to find an answer and then decide to found a foundation, get foods tested, and stand up against the slings and arrows from doctors and researchers and people who said she's not right. And if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't be here. That's how I discovered it personally. I had an attack of vulva pain that was so bad that I outbursted asking God to cut off my genitals because I was oh. like, oh my God, I can't think of oh my found them on the internet because he's, he heard me say, somebody cut these out. And then he ran to Google, Dr. Google saved the day and we found the foundation. And it took me, that was in 2009. It took me to 2013 to actually get it. So I tried to diet as best I could on that information in 2009 and 10, and I just didn't see it. And I was back on the sweet potatoes by a few years. And then the Kiwis finally taught me in combination with yoga class, I could finally see it in my own body. So once you know a little bit about how much oxalate you're eating, you just know something about the foods and which ones are the high ones. Eventually, you'll see it in your body. If you keep aware of, oh, now I'm eating high oxalate foods for the last two weeks and I feel like crap or my arthritis is back or whatever, you'll start to see it yourself eventually. But there's a lot we just have no, you know, philosophically, mentally, in our education about nutrition and food and symptoms, we don't have any kind of infrastructure in our own head to hang it on. And it's like, you can't, make it fit. It doesn't fit anything because so much of what we believe isn't right. Yeah. Well, Sally, it's been, you know, it's been amazing having you on. Really, really great. Blow my mind once again, honestly. <laughs> Just yeah. tearing down these myths left, right, and center. Honestly, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's been really a pleasure and honor to have you on. I think what you're doing is a real service to humanity, you know? Um, and it's only a shame that not more people are talking about this. And if they do talk about it, and it's easy to fall into this into this trap, is that talking about it, there's so many myths that are so common about it. It's very difficult to get to the truth. And since you said the research is so blurry and half of it is wrong anyway, that <laughs> it's very difficult for the layman to to get anywhere with this. So I think that you 
are doing such an important job. Um, and I'd just like to say thank you. And on behalf of our listeners as well, thank you. I'm sure they found it fascinating. And I'm sure that you'll have people who, um, who purchased that 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 guide that you've made they'll pay the two and a half dollars <laughs> but um but we really look forward to seeing your your book yeah. and um and whatnot and and the material that you've that you've got coming out is there anything you'd like to end the show on you know how can we find you how can we um access your your stuff yeah yeah so please come by to sallyknorton.com that's my website sally k k stands for Catherine. SallyKNorton.com. Check that site out. There's a lot of information there. There's some videos there. There's links to podcasts I've done in the past, and I'll try to add these this podcast to that list. So under the about page, you can find a second. The first about is about me, and the second one is lists of interviews and talks that I've done. And uh, please, all of you who are taking interest in Oxley, like Elliot, I'm so glad you found this topic and taking it seriously. Let's be careful about what we say until we actually know what we're talking about. And uh, Susan Owens has done that beautifully. She's refused to be a big, you know, pusher because she's trying to get it right. And so um, check out Sally K. Norton. I'm also on Instagram now. I'm trying to learn it anyway. <laughs> and I'm kind of liking Instagram. It's sort of fun. So please follow me on Instagram. You can, I'm on Twitter as well. It's called Better Low Ox on Instagram. And I'm SK Norton on, or excuse me, on Twitter, it's Better Low Ox. And on Instagram, it's, um, it's Sally K. Norton. Or no, SK Norton. Trying to hurry and get We'll add those uh, in, the, in the description below the video so people can, can find them. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in real life too. Sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Sally. You're welcome. Thank you. Be well. Happy spring. Indeed. Thanks, Sally. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.